0: This is Black Talk, where global Black experts mix with local voices from the Black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and Black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-Black racism. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Pender.
1: Hi, I'm Andy Knight.
2: Hi, I'm
1: Zach Pender. Zach and I are joined today by one of Canada's leading public intellectuals, Cecil Foster. Dr. Foster is a novelist, journalist, and professor. He is currently the chairman of the Department of Transnational Studies at the University of Buffalo. He's a major advocate for Black people and the marginalized. We're thrilled to share with you our conversation with Dr. Cecil Foster. You know, Cecil, you and I, we grew up in that beautiful island of Barbados, and I can still hear in my head now the, the song by the Merry Men about beautiful Barbados, the gem of the Caribbean Sea. But we all know from our parents' history that there was a history of apartheid on the island of Barbados, and we ourselves have experienced some forms of racism. I wonder if you can tell me a bit about your experience with racism, even in our beautiful island home of Barbados. Was it structural? Was it systemic? And were there variations in the nature of racism?
3: Yes, I, I often reflect on the kind of apartheid that we lived in in Barbados. Although it was supposedly a black island and the administration was supposedly black, And, you know, this is one of the things that I talked about in my very first novel, No Man in the House, in which I had a scene, for example, as a little boy who was somewhat like me, who would have been no more than about seven or eight years old, having to leave his home and walk several miles to go to visit an aunt who was working as a domestic in the white area and being amazed to see the walls that he had to go behind the walls with the broken glass embedded at the top in case anyone tried to climb over them and going to the side door where his aunt came out and uh, spoke to him and gave him some of the master's food to take back home and and i could have just easily have been in so, it'll. <laughs> I' just easily have been on any of the reservations here in Canada, in North America. And yes, and that, that racism was very structural, because you knew your place, as society um, told you, from the time you were born to the time that you die, you knew your place and your position in society. And you knew that if you were of a certain color, the limits that were placed on you the color of your skin could make a big difference because there was a time, um, just about the time Andy, when you and I were finishing school, when people with our complexion could not get jobs working in banks. We could not be bank tellers because of the color of our skin. And, and that was a big thing when the government of the day brought in legislation to disband that um, form of um, discrimination. But it was very much part and parcel of the life that we live. But the unfortunate thing is that I'm not sure that it is all gone from an island like Barbados because I still read of people who go to leading hotels on the island and and how they are watched and uh, followed by the security guards. And very often these are people who have international names, but the security guard does not know who they are. Is just see the color of their skin. And there is that feeling that that kind of racism is still very much structurally part where a security guard would see you walking at a major hotel and assume that automatically you do not belong. And, uh, and that belonging itself is predicated on a notion of inferiority whether it be inferiority of class, whether it's inferiority of birth or of language or whatever. And as we know that the one thing that makes racism, racism is the notion of a hierarchy based on superiority and inferiority. I know that
2: you, uh, you and Andy both attended the, uh, the prominent uh, college there in, in Barbados, but I was, I was wondering more so about when you came to Canada to attend McMaster University, if I'm not mistaken, um, along with Andy, and now you teach at a university in the United States, uh, Buffalo, New York. I was wondering if um, you can speak a little bit towards how you and your experience as a student here in Canada, and now as a professor in the United States, how you would um, say the student experience has changed? What have you noticed? Or have we come a long way in terms of the way that Black students are treated? Um, Or is it uh, more of the same um, in the contemporary era uh, as opposed to how it was a few decades ago?
3: Well, Zach, um, I would say that things have changed, but they have also remained the same because there is something that is seminal and essential that is at work. And and we are talking about how we recognize the dignity of the individual and the, the human being. You did um, take me way back to Barbados when we were at Harrison College, but in fact, at that time, they didn't think it of much of a, just a high school. We indeed thought it was a college. <laughs> it was the high school that at that time was producing all the prime ministers and all the professionals and on the island and elsewhere in the Eastern Caribbean and people who would get their sort of finishing touches. And then the next step would be to go to university and began the career, um, such as Along the Path, that first of all, um, Professor Knight went on. And uh, when I arrived in Canada, I went in a different path from Andy, where Andy remained in academia. But I went into journalism, and I was a journalist for the very first part of my life, where I would argue that I saw the practical side of racism, and uh, I didn't, studied as much in the abstract, but I saw it working out every day as a reporter, especially those days when I was at the report on business. And at that time, it was very difficult to find a black person who was at any level of management or mid-management in Canada. And in that time too, very often, I went into newsrooms where I was the sole black person in the newsroom and very often the sole ethnic person in the newsroom. And I would joke that when I leave those places that 100% of the black staff uh, would walk out with me because I was the sum total of the demand. And then later in life, I switched back into academia and uh, I didn't have the foresight like Andy to go to McMaster. I instead went to York University and uh, and I did my PhD there. But I went as a mature student. And to some extent, I was so focused on the finishing my PhD, I was just spending time in the library at home reading and focus. And I didn't have the same kind of experience as if I was a junior working my way through from the first degree up to the PhD, because I did all of my work in stages. So over this time, I saw changes. And I remember when I first came to Canada, that by and large, uh, most of us who came up from the Caribbean found it very difficult even getting into the universities. Uh, we applied to places like um, University of Toronto and elsewhere, and uh, they would say that all qualifications were not the same or were not of equal standing. And uh, people like myself um, then went to night school at York University. And that was the way that actually black and minority people, in fact, got themselves into academia. We were talking of a time when you could not find a black professor. And we were talking about the time where you might find a Jewish professor. But they were the ones that were just paving the way for other minority people to get in. And those were the times when uh, if you were a Chinese student, you were expected to go into business and business alone. And those of us who were black of African ancestry, we were just expected to take up space and then to eventually disappear. So that was the climate in which I experienced university in the first time. When I went back to do my um, graduate work, there was some change because there were some of us who were getting into graduate school. But then it was still very much a trickle. And it was the exceptional who got in. And it was the exceptional who would get the graduate um, scholarships, or who would get the tearships or who would get the kind of sustained support that you would anticipate And of course, there was nobody to mentor you. (laughs) You were mentored outside of your ethnic group, which to some extent has its benefits too. But um, it also meant that if you had a problem that was uniquely cultural, that there wasn't someone that you could talk to and to reminisce with. And then I ended up as a professor standing in front of the classroom. And one of the things that I discovered very quickly was that I would go into classrooms and students would come in and they would not expect me to be the professor. They would speak to me and they would react as if I am not the professor. And when I stand in front of the class and call the class to order and say, let's go in, you can see the look on their face. So that was the kind of thing that I experienced. And I experienced as well, especially when I was at Guelph University, that the preponderance of my classes were non-ethnic groups. Well, they were white, to put it differently, so that I really came across a black student. With time, that changed, and I started to get some black students, and then I started to mentor them, one of whom I was very proud of that I mentored from the time she came over from Nigeria and uh, did her master's, and when I went to... The university in Buffalo, she followed me and uh, did her PhD there as well, and she's an absolute um, brilliant student, Mother Lupe, and uh, she is doing very well, but there was that kind of bonding that she and I got from being who we were. And now I am in the United States, and I don't know if there's any real difference because I have attended sessions with the Black Students' Union and when the meeting is started, the person that is leading the discussion would ask the students, how many of you have had a black professor? And very few hands would, uh, would, would go into the ear to indicate that they had a black professor. And they would say again, um, how many of you have had a black professor even here at the university at Buffalo? And very few. So it is still that problem, and, and as you know, there's a paucity of faculty that uh, now we call underrepresented minority faculty across the system. So it is still somewhat difficult to have that person that you can readily identify with, the person that, who can walk the walk with you and talk the talk with you. And in many regards, it is still pioneering work that is being done. So I don't want to leave the impression that um, there haven't been changes. But at the same time, the changes in some respect are almost marginal. So yes, I want to try and unpack that a little bit. So if we go back
2: just a little bit to um, your career as a, a journalist, I read that, of course, you were reporter for the Caribbean News Agency, uh, you moved on later to start working at Toronto Star, Global Mail, Financial Post, a very decorated career in journalism, and this is before you embarked on your PhD. I was wondering if some of the racism that you described, um, that you experienced in the journalism industry, is, did this have any um, type of inspiration, did that give you any type of inspiration to leave and start and start to embark on a journey of academia? Yeah, I'm just kind of wondering if you can speak towards that a little bit.
3: Well, you're hitting on an area that I have often kept um, very private and to myself. The reason for my leaving journalism, and the reason for I leaving journalism, was because of racism, where I was forced out. I was a very successful journalist at the time, considered to be one of the top business reporters in Canada. And I ended up going through a period when I think that I got too big for my britches and uh, I was isolated and ultimately I was in a position where I would be going into work at the financial post and absolutely nobody in that newsroom would talk to me. I would go in in the morning and sit at my desk and stay there for about eight hours and then get up and leave and nobody would talk to me. That was the kind of isolation that I received in the in the newsroom. And it got to the point where it became so demoralizing for other staff that they went to management and said, this should not continue, um, do something about it because it's demoralizing us for what is happening. And I was offered a package, which I then left. Uh, and, and I remember on my exit interview when I was talking to then the manager of the newspaper saying to him, you know, this might very well be my last job in journalism in Canada. And he said, oh, absolutely not. You are fine, outstanding. Everyone um, know how well you are. This is only going to be transitionary. And I thought it was true because when I was at the Financial Post and the Globe, I had all sorts of offers from all sorts of newspapers all over to come and join them. I even at one point came out to Edmonton and had an interview to work with the Edmonton Journal. But then around that time, um, a curtain seemed to have come down and I could not get an interview and I could not get a job at any newspaper in Canada. Could not. Could not get a full-time job even when I went to the CBC and CTV and elsewhere. And, uh, and this was at a time when I was not only considered to be one of the top business journalists in Canada, I was building a profile as a published author. I had two novels that were published in Canada and was doing very well in the United States, and I was getting notice. And for some reason, I think that cut the wrong way among people in journalism, And uh, the result was that I ended up having to try to maintain a living. And that is at the point at which I switched and went back to academia. And that's why I went back to academia as a mature student, because I had run out of options at that time. I had more than met the glass ceiling. The glass ceiling had descended on me and was crushing me. And with a very young family, a family that had grown used to a certain standard of living from the salaries I uh, was receiving then, it became very difficult. And that ended up with my having to transition into uh, academia. But I did it very reluctantly. And I did it only after the person who would become my new wife came into my life and advised me and said, look. You're flogging a dead horse here. These people are not going to let you back into um, journalism.
2: We really appreciate you sharing those stories with us, especially for me being one of the many young Black men that looks up to you. Um, we we go through the same experiences too. And and just as young as I am, I can name experiences that I've had that are similar to that. Thank you so much for opening up about that. I think that says a lot, that
1: we really haven't gotten Uh, the just society that we'd like to see. We still, we have a multicultural society, but in some ways it's on the surface. Uh, We can enjoy each other's foods, we can enjoy each other's music and dance and carnival and festivities and so on. But how many people from the white society actually would invite a black person into their home and to be part of their family, to eat and dine with them at home? And I think this is one of the challenges we have, that they the multiculturalism that Canada does have is is very much on the
3: surface still. And and certainly I agree with you. And to me, I I have always argued that multiculturalism is about power. And uh, it is about undermining this notion that Canada is a white space and that ultimately the decision makers have to be white. The sensibilities have to be white, And that all of us have to, we are black and brown and Indian and native on the outside, but on the inside, we have to go through a transformation and become white. And we have to be co-opted into that kind of whiteness. And my argument is that all of that has to be jettisoned that multiculturalism to work has to begin internally. It has to be Canada and the Canadian institutions recognizing that it would be the citizens that make the decisions, that the citizens determine how to colonize the future, as we might use that political scientist term, and uh, in terms of making decisions, and that no amount of structuring that has been put in place, whether it be parliaments, RCMP, universities, or whatever, which were intended to sustain a specific ethos, that those institutions, if for them to survive, they have to be turned inside out, they have to be repeopled and rethought. And we cannot have those institutions continuing to give lip service to these notions of diversity, equity, and inclusion and things like that, while at the same time saying the core, the inner being, is really white. And to me that is where we have to start this discussion. So I for one, why I applaud the work that many brothers and sisters are doing under the rubric of diversity, equity, and inclusion I have difficulty with those concepts because, to me, very often what they imply is that the structures are already fully formed and they need to be tinkered with. They need to be changed. I want to go back and I want to say, no, no, no. Let's start from the very beginning of talking, first of all. Who gets to decide what is diversity? Who gets to decide who's going to be included? Who are going to be the includers, not who are only going to be the included? And that we have to, in a way, go through a transformation that would allow for settler colonies like those in which we live to come to terms with what they have done in the last 500 years and to recognize that the structures that they have put in place the harm they have done to First Nations people, that that cannot be allowed to continue. And that we have to start creating countries and institutions and agencies and things like that, that are based on empowering the citizens. If a Black person, a First Nation person, a Filipino person, or whatever person can be a citizen, They have a right to say who should be included next, and they have a right to say what we should do next. So I am not one for the upholding of institutions simply because in a moment of power, some group was able to impose an institution or a monument or a statute or something like that. I am more interested in how those institutions speak to the live reality that we have today.
2: After, after completing your PhD and embarking on academia, you've spent now uh, over 20 years um, in this place. And I want you to speak for a second towards the young black men and women. It seems as though you've found a home in academia. I want to know, has your experience been different being a black man working at a predominantly white institution? Has it improved over the journalism? And for my second part of the question, what do you think? Uh, you spoke just briefly about how, how this decolonial process, how it should be. Uh, how do you think, looking at our either Canadian or even American context, how do you think that we should start to fix some of these problems, start to fix some of the racial disadvantage that is perpetuated upon Black people and people of color? How do you think we should start to move in that right direction? Should it be at the government level uh, through legislation? Should it be you know, individual companies doing it on their own. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on both how your work is now in terms of race relations for yourself and how we should move forward into the future to make things better
3: for the generations that are going to come after us. Well, in terms of your, the first part of your question, you know, it, it is funny. And maybe what helped me to overcome the disappointments that I had when I left journalism was that my very first job in life was actually as a teacher. And I always thought journalism and teaching were different sides of the same coin. It was about a question of sharing and mentoring and reasoning and informing people. And, and I tell you the story of when I was in journalism, that very often I was the lone representative of Ethnic groups in those settings. So, in a sense, a good part of my work was teaching and getting people to understand uh, the different realities. So, when I got back into academia, I took very much that that attitude, and you'll notice that I never stopped writing. I continue to write as a novelist. I continue to write as an essayist. I continue to write popular books, and you'll notice that I did not write too many abstract, fully academic papers, because I always felt that I wanted to speak to a wider audience, of, of which academia was part of it, but I always thought that I wanted to speak to other people besides just fellow academics. Because I always felt that it was the message that was important, and the message of being at the table and part of making the decision. and. Uh, doing something that would enhance and make a better future for my kids and for my grandkids and for all the brown babies that look like me, and for the fact that we live in a country where all of the young babies are so miscegenated, if you might use that term, that it is hard to find any clear lines among them. And to me that's a wonderful thing, and I like being in the midst of that. As to the second uh, part of your story, in a way, I don't think that it is that difficult a task. And maybe I'm being too idealistic because I want to start from the position that there's always goodwill. And that as human beings and recognizing the, the human dignity, that we look on the face of the other and we see our God or we see our humanity or we see whatever and that there is something basic to us as human beings that will make us, in the leavenous sense, say, I don't want to kill that stranger. I want to work with that stranger. I want to work with that. And for me, um, the solutions that would work for multiculturalism were the same kind of solutions that were being talked about in the 1960s. We don't need to go and reinvent the wheel. And that is very often the trick that is used against us, where people come to us and say, what would you do that is new? Morality has been the same for the last three, four hundred years, where we know what is good and we know what is wrong, and we know how to treat people well. What we have to do is to deal with the power structure. And much of what is wrong can be summed up in the notion of political will. Do we as a people have the will to do what our mythology, our religions, our experiences, having fought two brutal wars, uh, world wars, and all of the different wars that we have fought, the enslavement of people, the placing of people on reservations, the genocidal stuff that has happened, you know, Coming out of the Second World War in that hiatus between 1948 and 1971 or so, there were a lot of people who thought we had learned our lessons and we had said, wow, we are not going to go back and we are not going to do those things. That's when we had Canadians out there drawing up the Charter of um, Rights at the United Nations in 1948 and we decolonizing and uh, and colonies are becoming fully independent because we are saying we have learned our lessons. Those things are still relevant today. It is still power. It is still having to deal with people who think that because of their privileged positions, there should be privilege and other people not, rather than feeling that they should have a sense of allowing everyone to come to the table and to allow themselves to become just one voice rather than the voice. And uh, and to me, that is where the promise is when I hear some politicians on all sides, when they start to talk about the us and they start to talk about the differences and the diversity. And they start to willingly... Undermine the, the privileged positions. And I think that that is where we should have our discussion. Laws and regulations and things like that will flow out of those things, but they can only flow out of a source of goodwill. If there's no goodwill, if there's not the political will, if there isn't the social will, that indeed we can get into a place where the lamb can lie down with the lion, birds of a feather can flock together, not because they are any other thing, but that, that they are birds rather than the notion that only birds of one feather flock together. But if we go beyond those superficiality of the feathers and we look at them as birds, then they can all flock together and they can live together. And if we can start with that kind of thinking, I think that we will start to make a lot of progress.
1: That's a very important, a, a very important way to segue into what I want to say next. Um, you know, the George Floyd moment, I like to call it the George Floyd moment, because we had a moment there when George Floyd was killed, was murdered by a white policeman, that we had to ask ourselves that question. We always said never again, you know, never again to genocide after the Jewish people were killed in the Holocaust. and Never again when Pol Pot killed uh, so many people in Cambodia. Never again in Rwanda. We keep saying never again in all these cases and yet still these crimes against humanity continue to happen. You know, I, I just wonder whether or not um, something else has to be done than just simply the rhetoric. We need to really look at the poorest structures that are in existence because that's where Change is going to really happen and we can no longer tinker around the edges or that's what reform is all about. And people are calling for reform, but we need probably more than the reform. We need restructuring. We need a complete abolishing of some of the structures that we currently have. Um, What do you think is the best approach, especially given universities that have actually been built on these structures of, of racism, how do you get through to people at these universities to bring about the kinds of changes that are necessary? It sometimes feels like, you know, when an airplane is in, in, in flight and there's a problem with the wing, it's almost like trying to change the, the wing of the airplane when the airplane is in flight. I mean, we have to continue to do what we're doing in the university system. So we can't completely destroy the university. But yes, still, there's the fundamental problems of the universities. We can't just simply tinker around with it any longer. We have to go beyond that.
3: Yes, and it is indeed a very difficult, difficult thing. Uh, and I like your analogy of the airplane in flight. But we must remember, though, that airplanes aren't always in flight. They do land at some point, and when they do land. We see all those people that are busily going around and checking parts to make sure the system is going. And I think that at universities and other institutions, we have to spend time on the ground. And uh, and sometimes they need to step back and to ask themselves what they're doing. You and I are at universities that are public institutions. They were set up for the good of the public to educate and to provide liberal educations and to provide scientific education and things like that. Their main task is for the betterment of society. So what does a University of Alberta and a University at Buffalo, what do they conceptualize as the good of society now? And I would hope that they do not see the good of society in 2021, in an era of the George Floyd rebellion, and when we saw the mass of young people of all ethnicities and all social categories out on the street saying, it is time for a change. We have ground this plane. Let's put on different wings. Or let's change to a different type of vehicle to get us going. And I think that that's what we have to keep reminding these institutions that there are public institutions and they are intended for the public good. And the public is a multicultural, a multi-ethnic, a plural society. And you cannot continue to argue that you're doing for the good of society while you are satisfying a minority at the expense a majority and uh, and i say that we have to put the plane down even if it means going back to the original point of departure we have to find a way to make first nation peoples have the confidence to be want to be part of these societies it is more than just attesting to their territoriality we all know that to me the attesting of the territoriality while it is an appropriate gesture it is like when we were having the discussion sometime about a color blindness in approaching um social justice well yeah that might be good at a universal level but i still want to be seen as a black man because there's something about being a black man that i love and there's something about me that is caught up in the fact that my experiences came out of my socializing and being placed in position as a black man. So I don't want to lose those things. So I think that we have to recognize that there are times that we have to let the differences boil up and we accept the differences as innate to life. And that differences don't have to mean automatic inequality.
1: Well, listen, you know, this has been a wonderful, uh, wonderful discussion with my old friend Cecil Foster. We grew up together as young kids in short pants. (laughs) But uh, I think part of what we're trying to do here is not to vilify the white race, uh, not to criticize people. not to criticize those individuals, but rather to open up the opportunity for conversation. A conversation on, on anti-Black racism within the Ivory Tower. This Black talk is really about a conversation about trying to understand uh, where we've come from and where we're headed as a society. It's about pushing back against some of the, the historical foundations that were, that were laid as obstacles in our path. And I think you've done a, a very good job today in sort of helping us to, to, to unravel some of these things. And so we want to thank you very much, Cecil. And well, well, yeah, go ahead.
3: Thank you, Andy. And, and, and on top of what you wanted to say, and I'll say this briefly, one of the legitimacy for us having these kinds of conversations is that when we go back to the 1960s, Canadians, in a moment of social bankruptcy, decided that they would accept a new social ideology and a new political ideology in which they said canada is committed to becoming a place of social justice that is still the official ideology of canada that canada is intended and working towards a place of social justice we haven't arrived there yet so we to keep ourselves honest And to be authentic and to be true to what we pledge ourselves, we need to have these conversations as a measurement of how we are progressing, as the train porters would say, as the train goes across Canada, how close it is to arriving at that final destination, which might be the destination with the title social justice on. And that's why it's important to have these conversations.
1: Very much so. So, thank you again for having this conversation with us. and I hope we ha- we have you on again at some point. There's so much to talk about, and uh, but we appreciate very much your your time and the, the attention
2: that you have paid to the kind of questions that we have raised. And thank you so much, Cecil. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Very, very, very happy to have been able to to come and speak with you and to to gain all of this information and knowledge. so Yes, just like Andy said, hopefully we have you
3: again soon. Thank you very much. And thank you, Zach. I enjoyed all of your questions.
0: Now, let's hear from community members
4: with stories from their personal experiences. My name is Jean Walrond. I'm a University of Alberta alumni. This is the story of my early days in Canada. I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago. My parents owned a pharmacy. So as a child, I had access to all the latest popular culture. I read everything that was happening to the Blacks in North America. Canada seemed to beckon the world to its shores. It seemed different, welcoming. So my mind was made up. I decided to come to Montreal. I attended Sir George Williams University. Academic work was a challenge because as a computer science student, I had six courses, including four labs. There were only two females in the program. The French female never showed up. The men did their labs in groups and I was by myself. Protests were taking place within Quebec fueled by Black power sentiment and race riots in the United States. Montreal English media continuously provoked racist sentiments. My university was at the center of all of this. I remember waking up to the noise that was taking place outside. I turned on my radio to the news that the Henry Hall building where I studied was on fire. I was scared. I did not dare go out to see what was happening at my university. I wandered out in the afternoon. The February streets around the Henry Hall building were flooded with cold water and computer cards. However, what shocked me was the evening newspaper's headline, let the niggers burn, in bold black letters. I could not believe the country I thought so highly of produced people and institutions that would dare write those words or use those words in public. What was I doing here? What was I thinking? I wanted to go back home, but I did not go home. I continued to attend the university until 1975 earning a Bachelor of Science in Statistics and Economics. However, those words were serrated over all parts of my soul, my heart, my mind, and my body. I would never forget them.
5: My name is Rebecca Ogulabi. I'm at the Faculty of Science at the University of Alberta.
2: How would you describe anti-Black racism?
5: I feel like in this day and age, it's really hard to describe because it it's not just anything that's, that's not Black-inclusive anymore. It can be very, very minute things like people of other cultures just not really understanding that there are different life perspectives to situations and not willing to accept and accommodate other people's perspectives. Honestly, it can come up in simple conversations like I've had personal experiences with like authority where like people use authority to like kind of like push down on people of color. So it's things like that. It's it's a lot in this day and age. It's it's very complicated now.
2: How have you dealt with racism in your own life?
5: This question is quite hard to answer because I, as someone that moves around a lot, um, especially in Canada, I've lived in very rural areas in some of those places. Some of them had never like even seen a Black person before. Like, um, um, okay, this is just like one of the experiences that stuck with me, not my worst experience. I was working at Tim Hortons at this time and... A gentleman came in and I did not serve him, but he targeted me and he spotted me out. He was like, hey, girl, you you messed up my order. You fix it. And then he called me the N word and propagated. I started crying. And what made it worse was when I started crying, my manager told me, you need to go to the back to cry. She didn't stand up for me. So it's. That also goes back to question number one. How do you describe anti-Black racism? When you see something that's wrong and when you see someone that's reacting to it, don't just shove it aside, you know?
2: Absolutely. I'm sorry to hear that. That's horrible. (laughs) Um, Have you ever had to self-police your behavior?
5: I have to do this all the time. Um, It's actually quite unfortunate because... (laughs) uh, like, for instance, if I'm going out, I can't just, like, go to the corner store in my sweatpants or something because people are going to look at me like, oh, this Black chick doesn't take care of herself. Let's like, It's like when I went to Staples a week ago and I got followed around because I had just woken up and I just looked a hot mess. Like, things like that happen all the time. And when I'm speaking to my Caucasian friends, which some of them have never had a Black friend before, which is okay, I have to police the way I speak, like... Like, you can't understand what I'm saying because, unfortunately, you you just don't have the experience. Um, I was talking to one of my friends and he didn't understand where I was coming from. And then one of my friends, like, she she does not self-police at all. She just went, you can't relate your life to a Black woman's. You don't understand. Uh, so it, it's things like that all the time. I have to self-police. It's, it's very difficult. <laughs>
2: What steps can we as a society take toward improving race relations for all?
5: We need to cancel cancel culture. Um, This is something that me and my friends talk about all the time. If you uh, demean someone because they made a mistake instead of when someone makes a mistake, this is the perfect time to open up the floor for discussion, for conversation, to educate them. This is why I think what you did is wrong. Let me tell you how it's affecting other people. Let me tell you what these people are struggling through. Like, let me show you their perspective. Let me not cancel your life because that's not going to benefit society. Let me try to educate you because then you can educate someone else. Then you can pay it forward, you know?
0: That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show sponsor, Kias, the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca. Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Pender. Our show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger and I'm Nicola Barito. Our theme music is Fling It Up by Dyson Knight of the Bahamas. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests, faculty, and students. The University of Alberta acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Find out more about Black Talk at
2: blacktalk.ca. Masculine to the city Freedom to expose me, self is ecstasy So free your mind, i leave we be. Don't waste your time, casting judgment on me Cause see the way this is happening Ain't nobody stopping me This is happening, ain't nobody stopping me This is happening, ain't nobody stopping me. Stoppin me. Stoppin me. Stoppin me. Stoppin me Nobody stopping me Nobody Bring it up
0: This is Black
3: Talk.